We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. As the men are passing out the handouts, I'm hoping as we go through this that we will learn how to better read our Bibles and to better understand our Bibles as we read them. We have to remember that when the Bible was written, we didn't have capital letters, we didn't have cross-references, we didn't have verse-references and things like that. And so in the Scriptures, when we read, the the way that they would cross-reference other Scriptures is they would use one of two things. One would be uh, the same phrases or the same wording. And so when when a, a, a later biblical author would want to reference a story, he would use similar phrases that were to recall in the mind of the hearer that previous story. And then the second way in which they would do uh, get you to think back to previous cross-references into stories was to, <clears throat> to get you to see a pattern, a, a pattern that happened in a previous passage that is now happening in the same passage. And so we have things like that that occur in the scriptures. And we're going to be seeing a lot of those in these first few chapters of Genesis. They're so foundational. And I'm not going to be able to point them all out. I'm not even claiming that I could point them all out and catch them myself, okay? But it's just it's just the way the scriptures were given to us. Now, in our modern day, we have paragraphs and we have indentation, and we have little cross-reference letters and verses and those type of things that can help us. But if we want to read the Scriptures as they were intended to be read, we need to pay attention to phrases and wordings and things like that and descriptions. Okay? So Genesis chapter 3. Is God good? Is God good? The world says things like this. You, you may see this, and you may hear this, you may see it on social media. Well, my God would never. And then what they say next contradicts what the God of the Bible commands or forbids. So in making these claims, the world is asking you, who believe in the God of the Bible, is your God really good? Most of us have a desire to be accepted by others. We tend to want to avoid conflict. So when controversial issues of our day come up, we may ask ourselves, well, did God really say that this is wrong? Did God really say that this was wrong in the scriptures? But then, more personally, there are times that we are, as individuals, are faced with temptation. There's something you want, and you want it Badly, You want it so badly that you are tempted to transgress God's boundaries of righteousness in order to have it. And you may ask yourself, is this really all that bad? Will it hurt anyone all that much if I do this? I see where things will be better for me if I just go ahead and whatever that is. And the thing that we're testing, the thing that we're trying in our own minds is, is God good? If God is good, then what he commands and what he forbids is good for us. 
And so this morning, as we look at these scriptures, do you really believe that God is good in what he forbids? And there are many voices out there today that compete for authority in our lives. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we've read how God created everything and he declared it good. He says it over and over and over again. But those statements have not been challenged. Just because God says it's good, does that mean it's good? What if God is not good? As we look at today's text, a new character enters the story. He's more clever than any of the animals. He is simply called the serpent. He is a divine being who opposes God. A divine being who opposes God. Whether he takes the form of a literal serpent, or this is a word that describes him, that's really not that important. By calling him a serpent, Moses seems to set up two things. Number one, an appropriate fear of God's enemy. Pretty much everybody has a fear of snakes, right? Sometimes, you know, you'll go to these little shows or whatever, and they'll have a snake, and they'll say, do you want to touch the snake? And, and the answer for me is no, I don't. I've always said that the closest I ever want to be a snake, to, the, about the closest I ever want to be to a snake is the length of a hoe handle. Right? Now, not everybody hates snakes, but for the most part, we all have this innate fear of snakes. And I think that that's part of what Moses is doing here. Uh, the other thing is he is setting up the serpent as a symbolic descriptor that can be used to describe those who oppose God. Indeed, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John describes a dragon that opposes God and God's people. And in Revelation 20, verse 2, he reveals that the dragon is that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So as we read our text today, the root issue that is being addressed is this question, is God good? Let's read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8. Now on your handout you'll notice that it says Genesis 3, 1 through 8, and then in parentheses it says ESV Texas Edition. Okay, English, or everybody else's English, doesn't have a word for the plural you. And I think it's pertinent to our story here, but in, here in Texas we have y'all. Right? So that's the plural you. So what I've done is I've went in and I've replaced the plural yous that we find in Genesis with the word y'all. And I think y'all will have no problem understanding the text, okay? But let's, let's read this. I do that just for clarity's sake. I think it's important to the text because Satan is addressing not just Eve, although Eve is a very central character, uh, and, and he, he is speaking to her, but he is speaking of both of them. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He was devious. He said to the woman, Did, I, did God actually say, Y'all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, Y'all shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
Neither shall y'all touch it, lest y'all die. But the serpent said to the woman, Y'all will not surely die. For God knows that when y'all eat of it, y'all's eyes will be opened, and y'all will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here we see Adam and Eve's temptation to believe that God is not good. And I want us to take a moment and look at each character in the story. First, the serpent. Take note of how the serpent tempts Eve and Adam who is standing by. He tempts them to believe that God is not good in what he forbids. He uses these same tactics in our day. As we look at these, first of all, number one, Satan focuses you on what God has forbidden. We have a garden full of trees that are described as a delight to the eye and good for food. But yet he says, can you not eat of all of them? So he focuses her on what she cannot have. Number two, Satan questions whether God's word really forbids what you desire. He says, did God actually say? So he's questioning the commands or the word of the Lord. And in our day, there are many people that uh, there are sinful things that they try to uh, twist the scriptures to say that the scriptures don't really say what they say in order that they can approve of sinful lifestyles. It's a tale as old as time, if you will. But then if you can't justify what you want by twisting the scriptures, number three, Satan questions whether God is good in forbidding what you desire. And here really gets to the crux of it. Here's something that you're told you cannot have. Is is it really bad for you? Or has God got some unseen motive? He says, God knows that when y'all disobey, y'all will be like God. How, How silly does that sound when you say it that way, right? To be like God, disobey God. Well, God's holy. Disobedience is not in his nature. And, and so Satan is presenting this here as if God would hold back something good from you that you need. That's the temptation. Is God really good in withholding this thing that you want? Then number four, Satan minimizes the consequences while maximizing the appeal. He minimizes the consequences. Y'all will not surely die. God's not really going to do what he said. And then he maximizes the appeal. Y'all will be like God. What is it in your life that Satan has focused your desires upon? What is it that you do or that you want to do that you try to twist the scriptures to justify it? 
What is it that God has forbidden that you don't think it's that bad? What sin do you justify by thinking the consequences are minimal compared to the pleasure you'll get? What voice are you listening to? God's word or something else? We're tempted by Satan in these same ways in our day. Now let's look at the woman in the story. And the first thing I want you to note is that the problem was not that the woman lacked provision from God. Look back to Genesis 2 verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So every tree in the garden meets these two qualifications. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. Again, the problem was not that she lacked provision from God. I heard a, a fellow say one time, he, he said, uh, he, he asked his wife, I think it was, he said, uh, do you want to go get a donut? And she said, well, I'm not really that hungry. And he says, what does hunger have to do with wanting a donut? <laughs> you see, eating a donut is not about need, but desire. Now look at Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, now, how is that different from any other tree? It's not, right? Every tree in the garden meets those two qualifications. But then the third qualification. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. The forbidden tree is only different from all the other trees in that it is desired to make one wise. So the second thing I want you to note is that her problem was her desire for something God had forbidden. The problem is her desire. Third, I want you to note the woman's vain efforts to use religion to curb her desires. Her vain efforts to use religion to curb her desires. Look at Genesis 3.3 when she recounts to the serpent what God had said. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, did God say that? Yes. But then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, had God said that? He had not. He had not. Now, we don't know whether Eve made this command up or whether Adam made this command up for Eve. Right? We don't know. But in some way, they have come to this conclusion that here's what God said... Here's where he drew the line. We're going to draw the line even further. Eve draws a line here where God did not draw a line. She added a law to God's commandment. This is going to become a problem with the Israelites, especially the Pharisees. And it continued even into the church. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. It's on the back of your handout. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Those, there were people that were coming along that said that you need to like, add a severity to your own life, limit yourself with regulations. 
Colossians 2, verse 20, it says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made what? Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the what? Indulgence of the flesh. Laws and rules do not address the real problem. The real problem is the desire of the heart. So this is something we have to be careful of as a church. We don't want to accuse someone of sinning when they cross a boundary that is set by man but not by God. Some examples would be what level of participation might someone have in the Halloween. Right? We don't have anywhere that God has drawn a line, yet some people out of personal convictions, do not want to participate in any way, shape, or form in Halloween. And that's fine if that's what God has convinced you of. But there are other people who see no problem in some limited participation in Halloween. right? And so we don't want to draw lines where God has not drawn lines. Modesty is the rule. Some people have made laws and rules for certain clothing types and that type of thing. When God has not done that, modesty is the rule. So we don't want to add laws there. Uh, another common one is the Bible forbids drunkenness. And there are some people that say, well, you cannot drink. And that may be a good personal conviction for you, but if somebody drinks one drink, have they sinned in the eyes of God? No. Right? So we want to be careful where we draw lines. Because I have a feeling, let's, let's say that Eve came up with this little thing, not to touch it. What if Adam when it came along and he like just grabbed one just to look at it? He's sitting there and he's holding it. He's, he doesn't want to eat it. He's just holding it. In God's eyes, has Adam sinned? No. No. He's just touched it. God said don't eat it. Right? These things may have been great baseballs for throwing or something. I don't know. But he's not sinned. But in Eve's eyes, has he sinned? So she's, she's now the judge instead of God being the judge. So we have to be careful as a church. I want you to have your individual convictions about things. But when we try to have everybody have the same convictions about everything, we end up being like the Amish, where everything down to the type of buttons on your clothes is determined by the church. And that's just not the case, okay? So there are things that God's forbidden, and we want to forbid those. In other things, we have to have grace. So again, these three things that we note about the woman, she did not lack provision, and if we seek the kingdom of God, according to Matthew 6.33, Jesus tells us that God will provide everything we need. She did not lack provision from God. You do not either. Number two, Her problem was her desire for something God had forbidden. And number three, her added rules did not help curb her desire. Now what about the man? Let's read Genesis 3.6. 
again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He was there for the whole thing. He was with her. Adam stood by, and instead of intervening for his bride and saying, no, don't do that, he listens to the voice of his wife. We find that out from verse 17 on down. It's not here in this passage, but the Lord rebukes Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. He listens to the voice of his wife and he partakes of the fruit himself. Instead of intervening for his bride, Adam stands by and then partakes. Now, the other character we have in this story is Moses. He's the one who wrote this, so he's the narrator. And he gives us the results of this sin. We'll talk about... We'll talk about this more in detail, Lord willing, the next time, and then we'll also talk about the the judgments that God makes, and we'll we'll think through, is God good in judgment? Okay? It's kind of the whole, is God good? It's kind of the theme of the whole chapter. Is God good in what he restricts, and is God good in judgment? And we'll find that he is good in both. But verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now again, Lord willing, we'll look at these in more detail the next time. But just something I want you to note uh, just real quickly. First of all, they knew evil. And they were overwhelmed by it. The realization of sin and evil. In other words, they had been focused on the good part, understanding what is good, didn't realize how bad bad was. Okay. Number two, they try to cover themselves. This is a pattern that we'll see over and over. We see it in our own lives when we sin. We attempt to cover it ourselves. We try to attempt to fix it ourselves. And then they try to hide from the consequences. They try to hide from God. They try to hide from the consequences of sin. So now, this account with the serpent and Eve in particular establishes a pattern that's going to be repeated throughout the Bible and in our own lives. And the pattern is see, desire, take, disaster. See, Desire, take, disaster. Abraham and Sarah see Hagar as a shortcut to fulfilling God's promise of a child. Abraham listens to the voice of his wife. They have a child. The result is the ongoing conflict with Ishmael and his subsequent generations. When Jericho was destroyed, God wanted everything devoted to destruction, but Achan sees a beautiful cloak of, and some gold, and he takes it, and his family is destroyed. And some of the Israelites die. You see, our sin never just affects ourselves. It affects other people. David sees Bathsheba, and he takes her in adultery. 
his household is plagued with sexual sin and murder from that point on. You see, God is good in what he forbids. If only Adam had intervened. If only there were a man who could resist temptation and intervene for us. If only there were a man who truly believed that God is good in what he forbids. And I think you know there is such a man. His name is Jesus. With that, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at Jesus' temptation to believe that God is not good. And I want you to note as we read through this, Jesus responds to the voice of temptation by quoting the word of God. Jesus believes God is good and what he, and what he forbids is also good. So as we begin with verses 1 through 4, we remember that Satan tempted Eve by saying, y'all will be like God. Satan here is tempting Jesus to see if Jesus was God in the flesh. Okay? So there's a little twist on the temptation. But Satan is tempting Jesus to see if he is the Son of God. And of course he is. Matthew 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eve had all kinds of food available to her, yet she chose self-gratification. Jesus had no food available, yet he chose obedience to God in hunger rather than self-gratification. That's the first temptation. Second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Eve was told to test what God had commanded. Did God really say... And she chose to disobey. Jesus is told what God had promised concerning him. Yet he would not test God. He was trusting his circumstances to God. He wasn't going to test God to see if God was good. Look at verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall, not wor- or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, Eve was promised a shortcut to being like God, and she took it. 
Jesus has promised a shortcut to being the king of the world that would not involve the cross. Yet he chose to worship God through suffering and death. Beloved, Jesus faced temptation on a level that Eve did not face, but similar. And he faced temptation on a level that you and I, we face it, but not on the same level as Jesus did. And he did it so that he could die in our place. Here is Jesus intervening for his bride and saying, I will take her sin upon myself. I will die for her. I will pay for her sins. And if you're here this morning and you have never repented of your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you today, turn from your sin and trust Jesus as the Lord of your life. Follow him with your life. It's worth it. Jesus paid it all. You see, the first Adam stood by instead of intervening for his bride, ultimately joining her in her disobedience. But Jesus did not stand by idly. He intervened. As we read this morning together from Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. First, that he might sanctify her. Second, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And then thirdly, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, the last Adam, intervenes for his bride, the church, giving his life for her. Jesus was tempted to believe that God is not good, but wholly succeeded in obeying God's good commands. You see, we are told specifically about two trees in the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then what was the other tree? The tree of life. And we'll see, Lord willing, next time that Adam and Eve were banished from the ability to partake of the tree of life so that they wouldn't live eternally in this fallen state. But I want you to see that Jesus is the tree of life. And in Matthew 26, 26, he makes this offer to his disciples. At the Last Supper, at the Passover, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said what? Take, eat, this is my body. Jesus is the tree of life, beloved. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ who came to die for the sins of his people and be resurrected to be the head of his body, the church. You see, Jesus believes that God is good and that what he forbids is good. But what about us? What about you and me? Well, what we, I think we would all say, if we were asked this morning, is God good? Yes, God's good. All the time God is good. But it's more than what we say, right? It's what do our actions reveal. What about our temptation to believe that God is not good in what he forbids? For that, we look to 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15-17. 
the Apostle John encapsulates Eve's threefold observation and desire into a definition of worldliness here. 1 John 2.15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see there the desires of the flesh is what Eve saw when she saw it was good for food. Now, why is that a desire of the flesh? Well, we established that Eve did not lack provision, right? Like it was the donut, right? She she didn't need the food that was provided by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She desired to partake for pleasure. They're the desires of the eyes. These are possessions. It's a, the fruit was a desire, to the, a delight to the eyes. These are found in possessions. Possessions in this world we keep and hoard to ourselves. We want them so badly we will do wrong things in order to get them. And then there's the pride of life that shows itself up in prominence. I want to be known for something, or power. I want to have power over other people. And then there's just the popularity. It's one of the evils, if you will, of social media is this, how it plays to our desire to be popular. And that's all seen in that desire to make one wise that Eve faced. Now we're told here we should not love the world because love of the world reveals that we do not love the Father. And number two, worldly things are not from the Father. And then thirdly, the world is temporal. It's not eternal. God doesn't want us focused on things that are going to pass away. He wants us focused on the things of Christ, His kingdom, His righteousness. So I've given you this definition of worldliness here. Worldliness is the desire for something which, in order to do it or to have it, You must transgress God's boundaries of righteousness. So some pleasure that you want, you're willing to transgress boundaries of righteousness in order to have it. Some possession that you want, some some car that you want, and it costs a little bit too much money, so you, you compromise your work, and maybe you lie in a sale, or maybe you steal some money in order to get it. These possessions. And then there's the pride of life. I want to be known for something, so I'm willing to step on people in order to get prominence. Worldliness is the desire for something which, in order to do or have it, you must transgress God's boundaries of righteousness. And so we have that desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I've given you on your handout different scriptures that address each one of those. Desires of the flesh is seen in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. The desires of the eyes, seen in, or exemplared, if you will, in Matthew 5, 27 through 29, in Colossians 3, verse 5, talks about idolatry. Again, desiring something so much, you're willing to rebel against God to get it. You're going to worship something more than you worship God. 
And then there's the pride of life, James 4, verses 1 through 10. It speaks of this friendship with the world, which is enmity with God, and how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We don't have time to read through all those, but I encourage you, maybe sometime this afternoon, just look through those scriptures and see how each of those areas, pleasure, possessions, pride of life, how they may be affecting you, being a voice in your mind that you're tempted to listen to that says God's not good. There are many today who wish to define themselves by their desires. Okay, that's kind of a somewhat new thing. But we want to define ourselves by our desires and find identity in what they desire or what they do. And, and the pride of life is like this, right? We're, we exalt ourselves because of what we have or what we do. It's one of the struggles of retirement for, for people is that you've been known as this. You identified by your work, and then when your work goes away, your identity suffers. Pride of life, exalting yourself because of what you do or what you have. Oh, look at my house. Look at my boat. Look at my car. We find value or identity in what we do or what we have. And then there's this temptation now in our day to define ourselves by what we desire. Even trying to redefine what a man and a woman is based on desires. We are not defined by our desires, beloved. And you as a Christian need to find your identity in Christ. I am a Christian. He is the king. He says what's good and what's right. And so the question this morning is, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good in what he forbids? If you do, then follow Jesus, your king. One commentator, Alan Ross, said this, The word of the Lord in the preceding chapters brought life and order. The words of the serpent now bring chaos and death. What voices are you listening to? What voices are telling you to focus on something that God has forbidden? The world wants to define what is good and right, but they contradict what God's word says. What voice will you listen to? Your flesh desires things that God has forbidden. What voice will you listen to? In contrast with Eve, we need to be like Jesus and resist temptation by believing God is good. And he finds that in God's word. In particular, he finds all three quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, from the travels in the wilderness when the people were brought out of Egypt, their slavery in Egypt, and they're being tested and tried on their way to the promised land. Beloved, we have been redeemed out of sin, and we are traveling to our promised land, but we're going to be tested and tried. We need to be like Jesus and resist temptation by believing God's word, because God is good. In contrast with Adam, we need to be like Jesus and intervene with our brethren when they are tempted to listen to other voices and believe that God's not good. Don't just stand around. Like if you see one of your fellow members here at Faith Baptist Church falling away, it's your responsibility. Don't be Adam. 
and just stand around. And even worse, maybe just go away yourself into sin. Intervene. James talks about that at the end of the book of James. Letting, letting one know that when he keeps his brother from sinning, brings back a brother from sin, he saved us all. Don't just stand around. You are responsible for your brothers. We, we see that in chapter 4, right? What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God is good in what he forbids? Well, then follow Jesus, your king. God is good. And all he commands and all he forbids is for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you will help us as Christians to resist other voices and our own desires by believing your word because you are good and what you give us is good for us and what you withhold from us is good to be withheld. Father, may, may we not be in this pattern that we see in the scriptures of seeing something that is forbidden, desiring it, and then taking it to our destruction and to the destruction of others. Oh, Father, how we see that sin, our sin, never affects just ourselves. Father, may we be more like Jesus. And then, Father, thank you for Jesus who did see a shortcut offered to him by Satan. But he responded by saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to that cross for us. Father, if there are those here who have never trusted Christ's payment for their sin, I pray, Lord, that they will repent of their sin and make him the king of their lives. Follow him. Oh, Father, help us, strengthen us to resist these other voices that tempt us to believe that you are not good. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.